I have to confess that there was a unique struggle in preparing this message, not for the reasons that you might think. The challenge of studying and meditating on this particular portion of Scripture was solely due to the overwhelming glory that this passage presents. I felt as though whenever I reached a ceiling of understanding, that ceiling was removed and there were greater heights, greater levels of revelation awaiting to be climbed. And when those levels were reached, there were even more levels to discover there. I felt as though when this chapter was opened, a vault was opened, and a wave of gold, silver, and precious stones just spilled out. And particularly last night, standing there before this text, looking around me, I thought to myself, what am I to do with all of this? Where am I to go with all of this? This scripture rightfully demands many parts. And we're not going to do that because I've been comforted by the realization that this particular moment is shared in Matthew, shared in Luke. And if the Lord tarries, and we do at some point as a church arrive to another gospel account down the road, then when we do come to this particular miraculous occurrence, we will have much to work with. There will still be much available at this banquet. And so we will attempt to come together and bring these things in a manner that we can understand while also honoring the absolute majesty of this portrait of Christ. And we will do so by organizing our thoughts in the following way. We will look first at the timing, the timing of this miracle. We will also look at the companions of this miracle. And lastly, we will look at the response to this miracle. And as simple as that format might be, the way we are going to most benefit from this is if we have Mark open before us with Luke and with Matthew at the same time so that we can do somewhat of a comparative analysis. And we can take these different threads and see a more complete picture of what is happening here on this holy mountain. And with that, may I encourage you from the beginning to give yourself over to these next few moments without distraction, because this is a very meaty passage, and it requires our efforts to chew if we are going to digest and benefit from the glorious flavors and nourishment that comes from what the Holy Spirit has inscribed here. What I am speaking to you of today is the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. It was an event of glory. But upon meditation and thinking about, because the sound team and the media team often ask in advance, what is the, the message of the, what is the, the title of the message today? And 
you would probably say the glory of the transfiguration, but there's too many glories. The glories of the transfiguration. So many glorious things happen in this one moment. And I want you to see it with me. I want you to travel with me in these passages. And I want your heart to come alive again as you see just how amazing God is and just how supernatural that Bible you have in your hands really is. Let's go to Mark chapter 9 and let's begin together in verse 1. May the Lord Jesus help us and empower us by his Holy Spirit to understand all that he has desired to speak. And may he receive maximum glory and praise and recognition for this authorship and the wisdom and the beauty of his voice. In Mark chapter 9, verse 1, we read, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Jesus only. May we see Jesus only today. The timing of this miracle. This chapter opens up with an interesting promise that Jesus makes. One that I believe has been misunderstood and misapplied even in some people's eschatology. Jesus looks at his own after telling them about his suffering and their suffering for following them, for following him, and he proclaims that among them standing there, they would not taste death. There would be a select few who would not taste death until something occurs, until they witness a particular event, and that is the kingdom of God coming with power, coming with power. Now that has led some to wonder if Jesus says that some of his own disciples would not die until the kingdom would come with power, then has the kingdom of God come in that messianic glory already? Some would say yes. Some would say based on this, surely then, very early on, Jesus' kingdom has been made fully manifest. Because how could it be? His disciples surely are dead. Are we actually still waiting for the kingdom to come with power? And if we are, then Jesus broke his promise, they would claim. And if not, if the kingdom has not really come with power, then what other options are you really left with then? Are some of the disciples still alive in 2023? Surely not. These attempts to try to make sense of this is really something we don't have to entertain when we do one thing, just honor the context. 
Look at the context. Context is king. Context keeps you safe. Context brings you to the true answer, at least the closest answer to the truth. Let's look at Jesus saying this here and compare it where else he said it. He said it in two other places, one place in Luke and one place in Matthew. And I told you in advance to have those books ready so that we can have a more complete picture. Let's turn quickly to Matthew 16, 28. To the left of Mark, Matthew 16, 28. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 28, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now turn to the right to Luke in chapter 9. If you look at Luke 9, look with me quickly at verse 27, and what do we see here in this passage? But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, if you have all those passages open, what do all of these declarations in these respective accounts have in common? All you have to do is look immediately after Jesus makes that statement, and they all have this one thing in common. Each time Jesus made this promise, it was immediately preceded before him taking up some of his disciples up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Right after Jesus said it in Mark, right after Jesus said it in Luke, right after Jesus said it in Matthew, immediately after, we have the event of the Transfiguration. Meaning what? The Transfiguration is the very fulfillment of this promise. The pledge that Jesus makes to his own was realized on this mountain. In what sense? Well, Christ here on this mountain is going to unveil something of his glory. And by doing so, he is giving the disciples a revelation, a glimpse, a peek, a sample, if you will, of what form he will take, of what demonstration he will have when he does come in his kingdom with power. In other words, what's happening here on the transfiguration was very much a manifestation of the king and his glory, but it was a foreshadowing. It was something that was real and true, but it was just a glimpse, not the complete fulfillment of it. And so what the disciples are actually experiencing here at this time is, in fact, the appearance of Christ in his glory, a demonstration of his power, but not the complete understanding and experience that awaits. Why did Jesus choose to do this now? Why at this point? And again, we have to look at what he just finished saying. He told these disciples who were eagerly anticipating the Messiah to come in his splendor and majesty that he was going to suffer and die instead. And on top of that, he looks at his closest followers and he says, you also must suffer. You also each have a cross with your name on it. Talk about blowing a bubble. Talk about being deflated. Talk about being even tempted to be discouraged. You have this high anticipation, this high expectation that this is the Messiah. We've seen his miracles. We've seen his power. He's going to make his kingdom appear at any moment. And instead, he hears, they hear, namely Peter as the leader as well, 
I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to resurrect. But you also, you're going to know some suffering for following me. And then he makes this statement. But some of you here, you're going to see my kingdom come with power. I'm going to show you something. And the reason why he wants to show them this, the reason why he's going to peel back the veil and he's going to, he's going to expose something of yet, of yet to come is because he wants to build them up. He wants to encourage them. He wants to bring some level of relief to them after hearing of the fate of the Messiah and their fate as well. In other words, by Jesus now coming and transfiguring before them, he's communicating something in the immediate sense. He wants the disciples to know, my death is not where it ends. God's purpose and program does not end with death. There is a glory to come. There is power to be realized. There is a government that will indeed be introduced that will indeed be put into motion and will never, ever know an end. And disciples, in order to build your faith with that, in order for you to see the full and complete picture of what this is all about, come with me. Let me show you something of my glory. Let me show you something of what is to come. In other words, Jesus wants to comfort them that their expectation of this awesome kingdom is not wrong. It's just not yet. And so this is what the disciples are going to realize. And they also would be encouraged as they prepare to suffer themselves and understanding if we are to be martyred, if we are to be hated, if we are to be persecuted, we are not giving our lives to something that will not end up being glorious, that will not end up being majestic and beautiful and dazzling. We saw we saw him on that mountain. We saw what is to come, and they were able to be strengthened for the suffering that is to come. May I remind you in your suffering, may I encourage you in your walk with Christ, with whatever persecution you are enduring, whatever persecution America will face in the coming years, that one way to alleviate, one way to strengthen your soul is to contemplate much on the glory of Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes on the last chapter of the story. Remember what is to come. Remember that this is not it. As much as we rejoice in the finished work of Jesus Christ, His redemptive plan is not yet finished. There is still something to come. There is still a fulfillment to be realized. Focus on that. Set your mind on things above. And see what strength will come to you. See what kind of, what kind of relief you will realize as the disciples were to realize in this very moment. And that's why Peter says later on in his one epistle in First Peter 1, or 2 Peter 1.16 rather, that we were eyewitnesses of his what? Majesty. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw his royalty. We saw his authority. We saw the magnificence of who he is. We saw it. We beheld it. And he testifies it of it later to the Christians who also needed to be encouraged by it. So how is the Lord going to now infuse this grace into them? He takes his closest three, Peter, James, John, and he goes up to a high mountain until they are very isolated. He stands before them, and we're told here in verse 2 that he transfigured before them. Transfigured before them. The original word for transfigure is where we get the word metamorphosis. It's talking about a 
powerful, all-encompassing kind of alteration. The same kind of experience that a caterpillar knows when it becomes a butterfly. We're not talking here about Jesus just slightly being enhanced. We're talking about this complete sense of transformation, physically speaking. He transfigured before them. And every single gospel account cannot help but comment on the whiteness of his clothes. Mark says that no one on earth could bleach them. You get the impression here that he's at loss of words. That when Peter told him about what he saw, he's like, I can't, I can't put language to just how pure and just how brilliant his attire was. Matthew says his face shone like the sun. Luke says that his face was actually altered. So you almost get the impression that this was a sight that left them somewhat speechless. Clearly we saw the reaction. They were terrified. There was this awe. There was something so overwhelming about what they perceived. Surely that's what's going to happen when we see him and his glory. Surely we are going to be absolutely stunned. I can't wait to see casual Christians see Jesus. I can't wait to see what's going to be on their face when they see him come in all of his glory and might and strength. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, we are told that when Jesus does come back for his saints in glory, you know what our response is going to be? That he might be marveled at. Just the sight of Christ is going to cause us to stare at him and wonder. Just who he is, and not, not necessarily his words, just who he is with his presence will cause us to be in absolute awe. And the Holy Spirit says in 2 Thessalonians, the saints, when he comes, will marvel at him. Will marvel at him. And there is a sense of that marveling here. Here's Jesus now who just unleashes something. And they are now in the light of this glory. But Luke adds a detail that Mark doesn't mention, that Matthew doesn't mention. I don't want you to see it. Because, yes, the timing here is after he had taught about suffering, and the location here is on top of this mountain. But Luke says Jesus was doing something right before he was transfigured. And I want to show it to you in Luke 9. Look here with me in verse 29. Luke 9, 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. You know what dazzling is? Sparkling. There's a sparkle there. But notice what Luke says. As he was praying. Luke loves to tell us about Jesus praying in his gospel record. He tells us that Jesus was praying at his baptism. He tells us that he is praying here. And so what's now, we have, again, we have another piece to this. Yeah, the disciples were brought up to the mountaintop, but Jesus, before them, began to pray, began to commune with the Father. 
And the Holy Spirit wants to tell us that it was in the praying that the transfiguration occurred. Could Jesus have morphed without prayer? Sure. Because this is not just an observation. This is a detail for your instruction in mind. There is a principle here, and I'm sure you're already aware of it. Christ, in his praying, knew a certain alteration. Is it any different for you and I? That there is a deeper conversion to be known. There is a deeper transformation to experience. There is a clearer reflection to be known in the place of prayer. In the place of being in the presence of God and seeking His face. That's the instruction here. That's the example that Christ provides. As he was transfigured, you also will know a change to a certain degree when you know how to sit before the Lord and allow the light of his presence, allow the truth of his word, allow your heart being open before him for him to speak into your life and reveal things to your conscience and to make things known through his word to you. There is a special depth of change that can be experienced in this place of prayer. You will not know a deeper change unless you know how to value genuine communion with God. And Jesus models that so perfectly. There was a particular glory that shined through him. And I see in the Bible that there is a particular beauty that will be reflected on you and I when we choose to take our relationship with him seriously in the place of prayer. There is something that he'll do in us and through us that will shine brighter in the place of prayer. What did the psalmist say in Psalm 34? He says something that I believe echoes this sentiment. He says in verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are what? Radiant. And their faces will never be ashamed. Those who look to him are radiant. The looking to him is not just a sense of internal dependency. It's connected with verse 4. There's a looking that is expressed in prayer. I sought the Lord. I'm looking to the Lord. And one of the rewards of that is that there is a radiance, a radiance that comes with a confidence, a trust, an enjoyment in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and this kind of praying that Jesus prayed, I'm under the impression that it wasn't like a microwave kind of prayer. Can I show you how? You're still in Luke 9, right? While Jesus was praying, what do you think the disciples were doing? Any guess? Look at verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. We've seen them sleeping before in the garden, Right? And they were sleeping according to the Gospels because of sorrow. Their eyes were heavy with sorrow. There's no indication here that they were sorrowful, and that's the reason why. Though they could have been because they were just told that the Messiah is going to suffer, and they're going to suffer. Maybe they were just emotionally drained by that truth, and they fell asleep. Or could it be that Jesus was praying and taking his time that they fell asleep because of that? And Jesus gave uninterrupted, patient fellowship with the Father. And here he is in that place with 
the Father, and the three disciples that are sleeping. And it is in that moment, at one point, where he is transfigured. Can you imagine being asleep while Jesus is being transfigured? You know, there are many Christians who can't see the glory of Jesus Christ, that they can't get excited about something like Mark chapter 9 because they're spiritually asleep. They've been lulled to sleep by the love of the things of this world. They've been stimulated to the point where they are distracted and they can't see what Christ wants them to see. I hope you're not spiritually asleep today. I hope you're not getting bored by the revelation of the awesomeness of Christ. If any of us are, may the Lord have mercy and wake us up so that we can see just how amazing He is. And so we see here that there is the timing of the miracle. It was after He taught about the suffering of Him himself and the suffering of the disciples. It was while he was praying. But now we come to something interesting, and it's the companions of the miracle. Peter, James, and John were not the only ones in attendance. They were not the only ones who were invited to this event. Verse 4 of Mark 9 tells us, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. That's fascinating. It's not every day Moses and Elijah show up especially when they haven't been on earth for thousands and hundreds of years. Moses and Elijah appear on the scene, and this is not by their own volition. This is not by their own will. Clearly, God had ordained and planned and scheduled their appearance here on this mountain. This was planned. This was staged, so to speak. It, this was intentional. And the question I'm sure that's running through your mind is why? Why? Maybe more than the how. Some would say, how did Moses and Elijah appear? But I think the common question is, why? Out of the great roster of all the Old Testament saints, why is it that Moses and Elijah were the ones who were summoned to stand with the transfigured Christ and to talk with him? So they weren't standing there stoic like statues. They appeared and there's a conversation going on. And I believe there are a few reasons why it was Moses and Elijah who appeared on the scene. Consider this. One, the further confirmation of the identity of Christ. A further confirmation of the identity of Christ. What did Jesus ask the disciples not too far back? He asked them, who do people say that I am? Look back here in Mark chapter 8. Look at verse 27. Jesus went on to his disciples in the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. Peter rightly confessed the identity of Jesus Christ, and Jesus praised Peter because of that. There was no confusion among him or the disciples concerning who he is as Messiah. But if there was any confusion, if there was any confusion, surely it's clarified now that you have Jesus standing there and who's beside him? Elijah. They ain't the same person. And he's not one of the prophets. He's not even one of the greatest of prophets, Elijah, and even Moses himself. Jesus is unique. And not only is he unique, he is greater than Moses. He's greater than Elijah. He stands alone. He's in a category all by himself. 
And so even through this, indirectly, there is somewhat of a further confirmation of the identity of Jesus Christ. But there's another kind of confirmation. Not of the identity of Christ per se, but of the testimony of Christ. The Pharisees love to come up with excuses not to listen to Jesus, not to consider him as a candidate for the Messiah that they supposedly were anticipating. And one of their favorite deflections, one of the favorite things that the the Pharisees wanted to do whenever they were confronted with messianic evidence was appeal to Moses. Saying, what do I mean by that? Let me show you in John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, after the man born blind was healed, there's this investigation that goes on because they want to know, how did this happen? And when it came to the Pharisees who interviewed this man, they said something in John 9, 28. There's a lot of Bible today. So I'm encouraged to hear the flipping of those pages. John 9, 28. Look at what these men say. And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple. But we are who? The disciples of Moses. Verse 29, we know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. They're just like scorning him. Who's this Jesus? Where did he come from? What's his reputation? What's his testimony? We're followers of Moses. We pledge our allegiance to him. And so as a deflection, they appeal to the authority of Moses. They appeal to the scriptures concerning Moses, the events tied to Moses. And so what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration? Elijah shows up, and who else shows up? Moses. And what does Moses do? By standing and talking with him, we're going to find out what they talked about. He is now witnessing to Christ. He is now affirming that this is indeed the one that I have spoken of. That this is indeed the one that I pointed to. I'm not in disagreement with this Jesus. I pointed to this Jesus. There's no confliction here. There's no two camps here. God spoke of a prophet to come. God spoke of a prophet to come and you shall listen to him and this is him. And so the appearance of Moses is somewhat of a rebuke to the Jewish leaders and to all who would try to hide and shield themselves behind him and how he was a mediator of their covenant. Now Moses shows up. He says, no, no, no. It's about Christ. I bear witness that his testimony is true. And so we have a confirmation in their appearance of the testimony of Christ, but that's not the only confirmation. We also have the confirmation of the ability of Christ. And so here's Jesus now manifesting his glory and allowing that manifestation to comfort the disciples that, okay, he will die, he will suffer many things, but he will come back again. And when he, come back, when he comes back, he will conquer and he will defeat all of our enemies And he will rule and reign forever and ever and ever. But that's not the only message that Jesus sought to convey. Because the appearance of Moses and Elijah was also a message in itself. When they appeared, there was also something that they could comfort themselves in concerning their future glory. Not just the glory of their king, but the glory of the saints. Elijah and Moses are alive after hundreds and hundreds of years. Elijah and Moses are alive and they're communing with Christ. 
Elijah and Moses are alive and they, they never cease to really live. They are, they are still here existing and vibrant and lively. So when Christ comes to give them a taste of the kingdom of the power to come, he's also giving them the encouragement that the saints will also rule and reign with him. The saints will also live with him, be with him, commune with him. So they had a hope for their tomorrow as well. How did Moses die? He died. He died. How did Elijah enter into the presence of God? Did he die? There's something there as well. Moses died a real death. Elijah entered into the presence of God in a very unique way. How does the scripture portray the saints in their entrance into glory? Well, some of us will die. But what does 1 Thessalonians 4 say? That some will be caught up in the air. Some will not die when he comes. And they will meet him in the air. And so you even have that kind of a picture there going on with Moses and Elijah. There are some saints who will die a real death physically, but will be brought into his arms. And there are some who will not die. And they will meet the Lord in the air. And so there is resurrection hope here. There is encouragement here. Oh, and there's so much more. I wish I could park here. I wish I could just park here with Moses and Elijah. Because there's so many other subpoints. Let me give you one to consider. What was Moses' burning desire in the book of Exodus, chapter 33, chapter 34? After he was assured that the presence of God would go with him in Israel into the promised land, that was not enough for Moses. Moses said, please, what? Show me your glory. There's more to you that I want to know. There's more to you that I want to discover. And God was willing to grant that request, but with caution, you will see something of my glory, but you cannot what? You can't see my face. So hide in the cleft of the rock, and I will put my hand there to cover you, and you will see my backside. Moses is more than willing to take what he can get, but oh, Jesus is so merciful and gracious. Why? Because we're told here that here's Jesus in his glory, and his face is shining, and who's in the presence of this glory? Moses. Now he's standing in the glory of God with an unveiled face. Jesus didn't hide his face from Moses at this point. What was another desire of Moses? Oh, Lord, would you please allow me to go to the promised land? No, enough. Stop asking me about this. Okay. Where is Moses standing now? He's in the promised land. Isn't God gracious? Isn't he merciful? So we have the companions. We have the companions of this miracle. Here are Moses and Elijah, and finally they confirm one last thing. They not just confirm his identity. They don't just confirm his testimony. They don't just confirm his ability. They confirm the centrality of Christ. There is a way of summarizing the library of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And Jesus tells us how the Jews understood a summary of the description of the Scriptures. You know what he said when he talked about the first greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment? He says, on these two commandments is what? The law and the prophets made up. The law and the prophets. If you want the reference to that, it's in Matthew 22. In Matthew 22, verse 40, I believe. 
On these two commandments, we have the law and the prophets. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. Jesus, now standing with them, is proclaiming that he is a fulfillment that all that the prophets pointed to, all that the law spoke of. Christ is the substance. All the promises, all the pictures, all the prophecies in the entire library of the Word of God is now here in the flesh. He's here. The centrality of Jesus Christ. This is what we've been waiting and longing for. He is now here before you, standing. And we're told here that they were talking. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. What were they talking about? The disciples sleeping? What were they discussing? What were they conversing? The Bible tells us what they were talking about. In Luke chapter 9, if you want to know what they were talking about, look at verse 30 and verse 31. It says here in Luke 9, 30 to 31, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, we cover that, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Spoke of his departure, which was about to be accomplished at Jerusalem. The Greek word for departure is exodus. So what was the main theme of their conversation? Jesus' exit from this world through his death and resurrection. That's what they were talking about. But what were they talking about? I, I, just, I, I had a joy just kicking back and thinking about that. Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus about his plan of salvation. Were they encouraging him? Were they praising and adoring him? Was Jesus in return in the conversation illuminating more things to them? Remember, we, we heard from Brother Mark earlier that the prophets wondered at what time, at what point these things were to occur. I wonder if Jesus here in this moment is telling them the greater details of his exodus. Moses led an exodus, the people of Israel from Egypt, slavery under Pharaoh. Jesus is an exodus going to conquer death so that we can be delivered from Satan and sin. They're talking about his exodus. How can you be asleep, guys? Wake up. Disciples are snoring. How can you be asleep? But finally, they did wake up. They woke up, and Jesus standing before them with these two saints, invokes in Peter a response. Now we look at the response of the miracle. Look at verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Oh, Peter. Peter, Peter, Peter. Peter's clearly excited. Not only is he excited, but we're told here that they spoke out of terror. He didn't know what to say, so he just, in his fear, gave some kind of suggestion. It's a very bad idea to make decisions when you're emotional. Uh, don't let your emotions rule you. Don't let them determine your response and your reaction to things. May the Holy Spirit help us to restrain ourselves and to be people who govern ourselves according to his word and truth more than what we feel in a moment, no matter how overwhelming those feelings are. Peter's, Peter's terrified, but he's not just 
saying anything. He's not just saying anything. And that's how some people interpret this, that Peter just kind of randomly uttered something with no value or significance. And to those who wouldn't say that, who say, no, Peter is actually saying something, they would say that he's just attempting to be hospitable here, right? Here's Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. We'll make some tents if you guys want to stay. We'll make this as much as, as comfortable as possible for you. Peter is not even trying to be hospitable here. Peter knows his Bible. And though he misinterpreted many things, he was aware of some things, and he was especially aware concerning the Messianic age when Christ would rule and reign on the earth. He, he loved those prophecies. And there is a prophecy in the book of Zechariah that tells us what will happen when Jesus Christ comes in his second advent. What will occur on the earth? What will be recognized? What will be celebrated? We get clues and indications of what life will be when Jesus rules and reigns on the earth. And I want to show you one thing that Peter connected with when he said this. Go to Zechariah 14 with me, please. And in verse 16, now mind you, this is speaking about when Jesus returns to the earth in judgment, in vengeance, and glory. And what are we told in Zechariah 14, 16? Then everyone who survives of all the nations in light of his judgment on the earth, that have come against Jerusalem, we read that in, book of, in the book of Revelation, don't we? The nations coming against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. So some of the Levitical feasts will be recognized during the millennial reign. Not all of them, some of them, and one of them will be the feast of booths. And during the feast of booths, the Jews would actually create booths or tents as a way of rehearsing God's faithfulness and protection during the wilderness, but more than that, them being settled and God being in their midst. And so here's how Peter is interpreting what's happening. Jesus is making his glory known. And I can imagine what was in his heart. Oh, this is it. Yes, he's not going to suffer. Here's, the, here's what we've been waiting for. This is what we've been asking for. Hallelujah. Here's Jesus in his glory. Oh, we got some old saints now that are here. This is the moment. Let's get our tents ready because in Zechariah 14, 16, he says that if we're going to worship the king when he comes, we're going to worship him with the Feast of Booth. So uh, we'll get one for you. We'll get one for you. We'll get one for you. This is it. And what's so funny, actually, is that you can imagine Peter's angst because in Luke's version, we're told here in Luke 9.33, in Luke 9.33, we're told, and as the men were parting from him, who were the men? Moses and Elijah. As the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. So imagine this now. You have the three, the, the crust coming out of their eyes. You have Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And at this point, Moses and Elijah are walking away. And Peter registers this enough to realize, oh, this is, this is Jesus coming with power. This is Jesus coming in glory. And Moses, no, 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 no. It's good that we're here. No, no, no. Come, come. I'll, I'll have a tent for you. I'll have a tent. Don't leave. Please don't leave. 
Peter still didn't get it. Peter still, after the rebuke, get behind me, Satan, after the clear teaching, he's still holding on to this idea that Christ is not going to suffer and die. And when Jesus gives them hope for tomorrow, some kind of revelation to prepare them for their own suffering and his suffering, Peter completely misinterprets it. And he thinks that Jesus is coming full-fledged now. Yes, here's some tents. Let's do this. And this is not the only response to this miracle because there is another response that comes now. There's another interjection. There's another intervention. Not by Moses, not by Elijah, not even by the Lord Jesus himself. What do we read of? Verse 7, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Well, that makes sense in light of Peter's response, right? Let's build some tents. And who comes to correct Peter? God the Father. Overshadowing the scene. You're not listening. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. In one gospel account, it says, while Peter was speaking, the cloud came. So the Lord of glory, the Father, intervenes with this cloud. And this is not some random mist. This is not some kind of curtain closing to this miracle. A cloud here is intentional. Has God appeared in a cloud before? Oh, if you know the Old Testament, yes, more than once. Many times has the Lord appeared in a cloud. And not only has he appeared in a cloud, there were some significant moments where he appeared in a cloud and through that cloud a voice came. And the most, I can't think of a more significant event than in Exodus 19 on Mount Sinai when God called Moses to prepare the nation of Israel to appear before him and God would manifest in his power and might. And one of the manifestations would indeed be a cloud, a thick cloud, we are told in Exodus 19. And when that cloud descended upon that mountain, a voice came through. And the reason for that display of glory was to affirm, was to define, was to sign off on the law that would be given as a covenant was being established. In other words, When God came with that cloud on Mount Sinai, he was demonstrating to the people of the authority of the law. This is coming from heaven. This is coming from me. This is not man-made. I'm showing you that this law is authoritative, and I bear witness to this law in this covenant. And you'll be held accountable based on how you respond to it. Now what do we see? Years, hundreds of years go by, and here's Jesus now. And Jesus Christ, he's on a mountain. And while he's on a mountain, a cloud comes and covers him. And a voice speaks through the cloud. Well, where do we see that? Exodus 19, a cloud comes and a voice comes through the cloud. What do we see here in Mark chapter 9? A cloud comes and a voice is spoken through. Why did God the Father choose to manifest himself in this way? For the same reason why he did back in Exodus 19. To show to the disciples 
that in the same way I manifested to give authority and to sign off on the legitimacy of the law, I'm doing now the same for my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him. He has authority. I've set my seal upon him. And so now we see this Old Testament imagery. Mountain, cloud, voice, covenant. New Testament. Jesus, mountain, cloud, he's ready to give a new covenant. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Here's where we're ending. What Matthew said concerning the father's statement is a little bit expanded in comparison to Mark. I want you to see it in Matthew 17, verse 5. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Matthew adds, With whom I am well pleased. Now we look at this and we see that the Father bears witness of the Son. We see that he expresses the divine nature of the Son. This is my beloved Son, not just the divine nature of the Son, but the divine love that the Father shared with the Son. And this is him telling the disciples who would carry on the message of Christ, listen to him. Stop mishearing what he's saying. Understand that he is the one that you've been waiting for. He is the one that I put my seal on. He is the one that is going to bring in a new covenant. Look, you're on a mountain. Here's the cloud. Doesn't this ring a bell, disciples? I was talking to my dad about this last night. He brought up something that I thought, wow, that's so significant. This statement in itself is, is profound on its own. But there's much more to it. If you really look at it, what the Father says of the Son is dripping absolutely dripping with Old Testament relevance, Old Testament truth, particularly concerning Jesus Christ. In other words, I argue before you today that when the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, listen to Him, was a strategic statement that for the careful eye would see that these are components within the Hebrew Bible that pointed to Jesus Christ. In other words, this is a profound statement that is in essence an echo. An echo. Something that you have read if you have covered the Old Testament and when the Father says this, there should be something in you that goes, I kind of heard something similar to this. I've kind of seen something close to this. If you do the work, you realize the Father is saying something even deeper than just what He is offering on the surface level. So let's take a breath, right? A lot of scripture, a lot of turning. This is my beloved Son. 
with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. You ready? Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. We're going to turn to three places, and I promise you we're ending. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Psalm 2-7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Who fulfilled this psalm? Jesus fulfilled it. In more than one place is this psalm quoted and is given to Christ. You are my son. Hold on to that. You are my son. Go to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 verse 1. You are my son. Isaiah 42, verse 1. This is a messianic prophecy. This is pointing to Jesus Christ. And notice what God says about his servant, the person of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 42, 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. In whom my soul delights. Here is the Father expressing his deep pleasure in the service and obedience that the Son would walk in when he would enter into this world. My soul delights in him. Psalm 2 7, you are my son. Isaiah 42 1, the servant of God with whom my soul delights. Last place. Deuteronomy, chapter 18, verse 15. Deuteronomy 18, 15. This is a known prophecy concerning Christ. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses says, from among you, from, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. What did the Father say when that cloud overshadowed Christ? This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And here you have the statement of Jesus being the Son in Psalm 2. Here you have a statement of God expressing his pleasure for the servant of God in Isaiah 42.1. And here you have in Deuteronomy, God telling Moses that there is a prophet to come. To him you shall listen. You know what's significant about the locations of each of those components? Each of those expressions and signs? Psalm, Isaiah the prophet, Deuteronomy, the law. Psalm, prophet, law. Psalm, prophet, law. I don't know if it clicked. If it didn't click, when Jesus at the end of Luke 24 appears before his disciples in his resurrected form, you don't have to turn there. Let me read to you what Jesus said to his disciples. He said in Luke 24, verse 44, this he said to him, 
These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Here's the Father. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is the one that the Psalms spoke about. This is the one that the prophets spoke about. This is the one that the law spoke about. This is him. Now listen. And suddenly, verse 8 of Mark 9, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with him but Jesus only. It's all about Jesus. When you read the prophets, it's about Jesus. When you read the Psalms, it points to Jesus. When you read the law, even in the law, yeah, the law that we feel nervous about, the law that we think is boring, even in the law, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And here's the Father saying, this is him. This is him. Isn't he worthy of worship? Isn't he worthy of adoration? Is your heart not moved to see that what you have in your hands, what you just heard in the past hour and a few minutes, is a supernatural reality? Oh, I pray that God would receive glory in what we heard today, that we would love him, obey him, and listen, listen to him. Lord, would you help us this afternoon as we look to you in your word, thanking you for the glories of the transfiguration. We pray, oh now, that you would help us worship you appropriately based on the truths that we have heard. Thank you, thank you, Lord, that we are people who can open your book without fear of persecution, that you can speak in ways that we never thought. We are amazed. We stand amazed. Help us remember your glory the glory to come, the glory that we will know and share with you when you do come and you will come. Our cry is Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.